You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, this is Ralph Macchio, and you are listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. back with another episode of the Epic Marvel Podcast. I'm your host, Curtis Findlay, and this episode, we have an interview with Ralph Macchio. And you will probably know him as a famous Marvel editor. He's been, he was an editor for um, pretty much all of the big titles at some point, you know, Spider-Man, Thor, um, Fantastic Four, everything there. So uh, I'm talking to him today about the Fantastic Four, and he had a really long run editing that book uh, from when Steve Englehart first came on the book all the way up until Onslaught. And uh, boy, oh boy, he he had his hands in so much stuff there. Uh, And we cover the Englehart run, uh, the Simonson run, and the DeFalco run, um, and go through kind of the whole history and talk about the the key moments and a little bit of behind-the-scenes stuff here and there. And it's just fantastic. Ralph is a great guy, and it was such a treat to be able to talk to him uh, for for just over an hour, pretty amazing, and I hope to to have him back on the show at some point again. We appreciate all of our Patreon supporters. I just want to put a little plug in for that before we get started with the interview. Head over to Patreon.com/slash/Thunderquack and um, and give us a pledge, and I'll be throwing up some some interviews before they hit our regular stream here on the podcast. And uh, yeah, five dollar pledge will get you access to a bunch of cool content, including um, Mike just put up an interview that he did with me about myself and my history, um, kind of a look at the journey that I was on that eventually led to me publishing um, my first book with IDW called Chuck Jones, The Dream That Never Was. That was published by IDW's Library of American Comics. So I encourage you to check that out uh, on the Thunderquack Patreon page. I think you just have to pledge a buck to, to hear that one. So this interview with Ralph Macchio is going to be a companion episode for all of our Engelhart and Simonson and DeFalco episodes, because it kind of overlaps all of them. And you can hear Eric and myself talking about part of the Engelhart run in episode 16, All in the Family, and part of the Simonson run in Into the Time Stream. And we'll eventually get to DeFalco's run and the other parts of the, the those other runs as those volumes come out. So without further ado, here's my interview with Ralph Macchio. This is great. I am very thrilled to be talking with you because I have, um, I've, you know, unknowingly, I think the the editor kind of gets the, to be the unsung hero a lot of times, but I've unknowingly been a fan of a lot of your work over the years. It's so nice of you to say that. Thank you so much. Now, <laughs> the editor is sort of behind the camera guy. When people have asked me, people outside of comics who don't quite understand what we do in comics... And I've tried to liken an editor to sort of a director. You know, his style sometimes, like Hitchcock may show through 
on screen, but a lot of times it's very invisible what he does, but he kind of oversees the whole project. So it's, it's very nice of you to say that, and I, I thank you for it. It'll be interesting then a conversation based on what you just said, because um, we're going to talk about the Fantastic Four, and especially since um, your, your run, which was like over seven years, I think, lasted through... Yeah, a, it was a long run. It lasted through about three different major uh, writers, and uh, and we'll see how your... Um, what do you, what do you call it? The influence of the uh, the the tone and the feel kind of uh, permeates the different writers through that. Well, as I mentioned, I did have a chance last night because you know, having edited so many things and having had such a long run on FF, I kind of pulled out uh, everything from the you know the beginning uh, in the first Engelhart stuff right to the very end of uh, my run with Tom DeFalco. So I did have a, a bit of a chance to, you know, I didn't certainly reread every issue, but I kind of flipped through them and tried to get a sense of what was on my mind as I was working on a lot of the stuff. But I'll certainly rely on you a bit, to, you know, to, to fill in any gaps because, sure. you know, after a while you, you you can't rely on your memory 100% anymore. So yeah. I wanted to uh, just say that at the beginning. Well, and some of this stuff is coming up 25 years ago. Like that's uh, <laughs> that is quite a while. Absolutely. Well, uh, I just recently was interviewed for um, Back Issue magazine for uh, a Black Widow series that George Perez and I had done. Um, and that's going back now 25-something years, because even when we, you know, it took years to get off the ground and, and years between issues. And it was, uh, you know, a wonderful thing to work with George on. But uh, I hadn't realized how, how long in the past that was. And then they, you know, they reminded me how far back that went. So, yeah, that's... Uh, goes back a long way a lot of these things wow perfect well let's let's get going then and, and start at the very beginning how did did you first come associated with the fantastic four well uh if, if i remember correctly um uh, don daly was editing the book before i was and uh there was a, an agreement i think that tom defalco had where i would pick up both captain america and Fantastic Four from Don, and I believe he then went on to other projects. Tom DeFalco at the time was kind of uh, reassigning things from different offices, and he was just looking for people who would, you know, be comfortable with these particular projects. And so I guess he talked to Don about certain things, talked to me about certain things, and when it came time, uh, you know, either the switch was made or Don, you know, got to work on other projects. I remember Don was the the big Punisher guy. You know, there were times he was editing, you know, three Punisher books a month. Yeah, Um, and yeah, and, and and quite well. And I had the uh, opportunity then to jump on Captain America uh, with Mark Grunewald, and then with um, with uh, Steve Englehart on um, Fantastic Four. So if I remember right, I did not put Steve on Fantastic Four, but I think he was a fine choice. We always had, uh, you know, we had John Buscema there on the pencils that uh, John had been put on, and that that's always great. You can't go wrong with John. Right. And it was an, a really nice run. I mean, I've always been an admirer of Steve Englehart's work. To me, he was he was sort of like the quintessential new superhero writer. You know, you had you had guys like, of course, you know, top of the line Stan, and descended from him, you'd have Roy and Jerry. And then I think the next generation um, of superhero writers that was in that tradition would be Englehart. Um, I wouldn't list McGregor there, and I wouldn't list Gerber there. They were kind of you know, askew in that in that tradition. They went sort of in, in different ways. But right, the guy right. who followed, you know what I mean, the, the, but the guy who would follow really in that Roy tradition um, was Steve. And that's why I think he was so good also to, to, you know, pick up on Avengers and such because uh, he brought his own voice to it 
but it also wasn't a wrenching, jarring change from Roy. So, uh, you know, I, I've admired Steve that way because, of course, I'm a big fan of, of Marvel Comics. Um, and uh, Steve did some, you know, some neat stuff on the run. And, uh, you know, we had a good time. We had a good time on that. What would you say was your, what you brought to, to the Fantastic Four in this time during Steve Englehart's run? Well, I would have to say that the thing that I, I most discussed with Steve that I was, uh, you know, extremely happy that we were able to do was to do our little excursion back into Secret Wars. We did a few issues that culminated in, I think it was a double-sized issue, Secret Wars 3. Um, you know, I'd always been fascinated by the, uh, by the Beyonder, Molecule Man dynamic, and, uh, and, and power levels of the Marvel Universe have always fascinated me. You know, who is the most powerful? I go back to that, you know, who, who can beat who, the Hulk or the Thing, or, you know, Thor or the Hulk? And then you go into the cosmic level, and I just kind of spent time thinking about that. Is, you know, eternity more powerful than the stranger, and tribunal, the living tribunal is top of the line. And so, uh, you know, I, I remember discussing this with Steve, saying, you know, let's bring the Beyonder back, and let's deal with this other character, Cubic, and let's try to really delve into what the cosmic cube is. I think that was the first place where we really laid the foundation for what a cosmic cube was. And I remember finding at one point a light just kind of went off in my head. And I was going, oh, you know, there's this thing about desire. The Beyonder is all about desire and wanting to fulfill desire, wanting to know what desire is. I said, and what does a cosmic cube do? A cosmic cube is this little, this little cube of energy that fulfills your desire. That is like an Aladdin's lamp. I'm sure that's what Stan and Jack were thinking of when they created the Cosmic Cube, that this was a modern-day technological Aladdin's lamp. It gives you your heart's desire, your wishes. And so I wanted to relate the Beyonder energy with that of the Molecule Man. So we kind of played around with that. And then later on, um, I was able to do a story with Len Kaminsky where... I wanted to show that the really unleashed Molecule Man was actually more powerful than the Beyonder when, when the evil side of Owen Reese came out, when that side that was first shown when he first became the Molecule Man and then he didn't realize he could control organic as well as inorganic molecules. But when that side of him fully came out, he was even more powerful than the Beyonder because that's just my thing is to play around with power levels in the Marvel Universe. So Steve and I worked very closely on that. Um, we tied in stuff with the Savage Land, and we went into the idea of the Beyonders, which you know was uh, later played up uh, quite a bit by Jonathan Hickman in his Secret War story. Mm -hmm, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so we, I think we kind of laid the foundation a little bit for that um, with those issues. And then, you know, Steve also went off and did some of his crazy stuff that I, I enjoyed with Facade, um, this sort of electromagnetic... Um, thing that was, uh, uh, I think it was a, an Arab guy who was sort of uh, turned into electromagnetic waves and all, and, and that was fun. That was like an Outer Limits story. And we brought in Sharon Venturi, you know, we shook up the membership thing. And uh, again, that, the, the one I was most pleased with, though, was, the, um, was that Cosmic Cube story. I really enjoyed working on that with Steve. Now, Steve made some pretty drastic changes to the roster right away when he yes. came on board. Now, what were your, did you have hesitations of taking out Reed and Sue? Oh, no. No, not at all. Um, I think that um, when you have a group, a quartet like that, where they all play perfectly off one another, one of the best things to do is to remove a couple of them. Um, I'm sure we'll get into this later in the run when we go into the DeFalco stuff, but um, I think when you do something like that, uh, 
you change the group dynamics, which allows you to get into characters' heads more. Because when they're a family unit, everybody eventually sort of finds their niche, just like in a family. And when you remove one of those underpinnings, everybody has to sort of jostle for position again, and they, they begin to have to assume other positions within that family structure, which brings out other aspects of their personality and I think makes it more interesting for writers, too. If I remember correctly, during Roy's run, um, he played around with that, too. I think he brought Luke Cage in uh, yeah. at one point, right? And, uh, and other guys, I think Jerry may have, may have done it, too, or Len. But no, I, I thought that was very interesting. And I remember, um, I think um, Simonson eventually picked the, the, those two characters up, Reed and Sue, and I think he put them uh, in the Avengers for a while. So, yeah, knowing that it's not going to be a permanent thing, because eventually, you know, the laws of gravity prevail, and, and all this stuff always goes back to what it was. Right. Um, it was just fun to do for that, that period, however long it was going to be. So, no, I had, had no problems with that at all. And uh, Ben went through some uh, pretty drastic changes himself as well, physical and I think even, even physically, as well. yeah. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about um, about Ben and Sharon and their relationship and how um, did you did you leave that mostly up to Steve or did you foster that a little bit? No, I left that pretty much up to Steve. Uh, he knew where he wanted to go with it. Uh, he wanted to again mess around with the dynamic, you know. Um, uh, ben had been for a long time, you know, he, he had been uh, with with his gal, uh, Alicia, and I thought, again, that was kind of a, you know, brilliant thing that Lee and Kirby did, uh, having him get involved with a woman who was blind, so she could only really see him from the inside and uh, not see the monster on the outside. But it was time to do some changes there, you know, um, if they weren't getting married or whatever, let, let's play around with that. Uh, you know, that dynamic. And uh, again, because, you know, Sharon had been drastically changed too. I think some of the readers may have found it uncomfortable, but I think um, I think it worked. I think uh, even though it made some people uncomfortable and some people reacted negatively to it, um, you know, in some ways that's good. That means you, you got them to react. So mm-hmm. uh, I most of that was, was Steve's doing. Um, I certainly did not, uh, you know, put a damper on it. I thought that uh, let him explore this. So I was, uh, you know, I was pleased with where he went with it. And we had some good visuals on there, too, both from John and then from Keith Pollard, too. Right. Um, and, of course, Joe Sinnott tying it all together. Oh, of course. Can't beat Joe. I mean, they talk about the foundation. Uh, absolutely brilliant. You know, we had Rich Buckler, too, and you get Sinnott on there. I mean, it just all has this clean look. I was so, you know, impressed again to, to look through those early issues again and, and look at... Um, you know, all of those guys, all three of those guys, and see how, how seamlessly the art seemed to blend. And, you know, especially looking at uh, John and, and Joe Sinnott, because, you know, as you know, after Kirby left, John Buscema's look really became the look of Marvel. It was somewhat more realistic than, you know, what Kirby did, um, and, and it, it didn't quite have the, the incredible dynamics of Kirby, because nobody did. But there was a little bit more of a realistic look to it, um, and I think Marvel was ready for that, and the readers were ready for that. So, uh, you know, when, when John came on, um, it was just a whole kind of a nice a nice look that he brought to Fantastic Four, and um, I, I, I was very happy with what he did on that. Always, always great working with John. Now, toward the end of Steve's run, I talked to him a few months ago, and he, uh, he wasn't too happy mm-hmm. with the way he left, um, and he 
kind of he even says himself that he kind of checked out toward toward the end of it didn't want his name on the on the on the book or anything like that now how does that right we had john harkness yeah yeah john harkness exactly now how does um how does that as an you as an editor have to uh deal with that sort of with that sort of thing well i know there were and again you know it gets a little hazy over time and i i don't want to uh you don't want to malign anybody or, or whatever it was but i i do remember towards the end of the run there was one particular problem if i remember right that had to do with Quicksilver and Crystal. And there was something where the relationship that Steve wanted to move, the direction Steve wanted to move in the relationship between Quicksilver and Crystal, kind of ran, ran afoul of what they were going to do with those characters in the X books, if I remember right. And that, again, we kind of um, said, you know, we'll, we'll, let, uh, we'll let Tom DeFalco kind of mediate with this. And, and, and he... I think Tom kind of went in that that other direction. So I think Steve probably was not too happy with that, um, that he may have felt he was ruled against. But, you know, Tom took a very practical point of view about who was going to have these characters over the long haul, etc. So he made what he thought was the best judgment. And I guess Steve was, was kind of missed at that. And again, I think that was the, the sort of beginning of him sort of, you know, drawing back a little bit. But he did have, you know, even when he was John Harkness, he still was doing some fun stuff with the book. And we did that Dream Quest saga, and you know other things happened in there, and uh, you know I enjoyed it. I didn't take him off the book. Um, I, I understood where Steve was coming from, and I wanted him to finish out his run. So, uh, but again, I do think that the, the, the thing that moved him a bit back from it, I think, was that initial problem between the with the relationship between Quicksilver and um, and uh, Crystal, if I remember right. Well, and that's part of the the one of the problems with the Marvel universe being so interconnected because they're so they're so heavy in both Fantastic Four and the X Worlds, the Inhumans. Yes. So, how does that affect your job as an editor with continuity and working with other editors and other books? Well, you know, the, the thing is, you are you're on staff with these editors, and of course, you know, Bob Harris had been my, uh, if I remember right, I think Bob was the the editor at that time on on X Books, and Bob had been my first assistant. Bob and I were also very good friends, and I respected Bob as uh, as an editor because he brought uh, you know tremendous growth to any book that he worked on, uh, you know whether it was the Hulk or the X books, whatever. And you know you're with that guy every day. You go out to lunch, you know you hang out in their office and all. So you don't want to have bad relationships with them. Um, you want to make sure that everything is smoothed over. But you're exactly right. You do have a problem where. You know, everything is so interconnected in the Marvel Universe that you can't but help bump up against what somebody else is doing. You just try, to the best of your ability, to consult with them and to make sure that, you know, nobody is being offended or their feathers are being ruffled. Um, I I do remember, as another example, I, I do remember when we began to sort of acquire the kingpin during Frank Miller's run in Daredevil, and I know there was some friction between our office and the Spider-Man office because they said, you know, quite rightly, hey, you know, the Kingpin is really, he's a Spider-Man villain, first and foremost, but Frank was doing such brilliant stuff with him in Daredevil that, you know, we we had to get kind of a ruling on uh, which office could really take the lead on where the Kingpin was going to go, and in that one I, you know, came out on top, um, with certainly with the leverage of Frank there. Um, But... You know, again, that that is a problem, and you know, Fantastic Four being really at the heart of the Marvel Universe, you know, the first family, 
um, their connections are all over the place. So uh, there was this problem with Quicksilver and with um, I think Steve. I think Steve wanted to play Quicksilver as a bit more of an outsider and and a bit more of a kind of a nasty, bitter character than I think the X office wanted to go in. And I think that's why he wanted to, I think, split up the relationship between Crystal and Quicksilver. And again, I'm I'm trying to remember this, but I don't recall it 100%. But I think that's what was going on. And I think they, they didn't really want that. So some of the stuff Steve had done had gotten rewritten um, at the request of the of the ex office, and I don't think Steve was happy with that, if I remember right. Yeah, I could imagine. Now, he may have told you something different, but I'm not I'm not really sure. That's the way I recall it. Yeah, no, he didn't go into specifics, but uh, um, that was uh, there was the one issue where he did definitely play with Quicksilver in that sense. He was much more bitter of a character. Um, that was very early on in his run, and uh, and then that's why Crystal came over to the Fantastic Four. Right. So exactly. It, yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, so why did uh, why did you choose Walt Simonson to to follow up? Well, here's an interesting thing. Um, again, you know, in, in in comics, you're you're friends with an awful lot of people, and um, it was Mark Grunewald who had the brilliant idea to put Walt on Thor. I wish I had been the guy to think of it, um, but it was a it was a masterstroke because Walt, you know, his favorite comics character, if I remember right, was Thor. I mean, he always said that, you know, when he was growing up, um, you know, he had a few favorites, and Thor was right at the top of his list. He was very much into the whole Norse mythology thing. Uh, and I think he said he'd even, as a as a high school student or, or whatever, had actually sort of written out that entire Surtur saga, um, had, had sort of already plotted it out, you know, so that was a fascinating thing. But what happened was we... Um, you know, it was it was time to make a change in Fantastic Four, and I was at Chris Claremont's house out in Brooklyn, and uh, it was a little party, a little get together. Chris and I also very very good friends for many years, and Walt was there, and I talked to Walt about taking over Fantastic Four. I thought, you know, I think Walt has just got so much to give on these books. Um, you know, I was so pleased to have been able to work with Walt for the better part of his run, even though Mark put him on Thor. I think I was on working with him on Thor for uh, an even longer period than Mark did. Um, and I said, you know, this is a guy, if there's one guy who could write Reed Richards, who would get the science, it's Walt. Because Walt has is, is got a wide-ranging intellect. He's also a fantastic writer. He's a great illustrator. I mean, this is a guy, if you want to bring all this energy to Fantastic Four, this is the guy to do it. So I mentioned it to Walt, and he right away started throwing ideas at me. And we wound up talking for about an hour at Chris Claremont's house, about Fantastic Four. And at that time also, um, what happened was, Walt was, was going to come on the book, but we had to do, he was going to come on both as the writer and as the penciler, which I loved. But we had several issues to do first that Walt had to write, um, because we were in the midst of a crossover. Um, right, Acts of Vengeance. At that point. Acts of Vengeance, exactly. Yep. So we had to play around with that for several issues before Walt could actually jump on as the writer-penciler. And I think he came on, remember, I think it was 337 was when he started as both the writer and artist, and we began that whole um, storyline with the Celestials and the, the, the future stuff that we went into, and it was just perfect. Uh, as I say, one of the things that I, I really felt was a lot of writers, as good as they were, never really caught 
the science of it. A lot of guys were, and, and, and they self-admittedly, even Stan, you know, they weren't really versed in science, astrophysics, things like that. But Walt knew that stuff. You know, he understood, you know, what Werner Heisenberg was talking about with the uncertainty principle. That's why he called the engines in the time sled, you know, the Heisenberg uncertainty generators or whatever. Uh. And he knew what was going on. So um, he was a guy I felt could really write Reed Richards and do him well without just coming off as kind of pompous and throwing around a lot of, you know, scientific jargon. He would get it. And Reed would really, you know, become a major, major player in FF, where before it had often been, you know, the thing or the torch who sort of took the lead. And that's exactly the way it turned out. Um, and I was so, so happy, you know, with the entire run that Walt had on that book. But that, that first storyline where we dealt with the Celestials and that time barrier in the future and the time sled and all. One thing, though, um, you may may have noticed this. One thing I kind of snuck in there and never had told anybody about was, as you know, the tagline for Fantastic Four is, the world's greatest comic magazine. Yep. Well, if, if you look, because the first issue that Walt wrote in pencil, he really spent so much time on that we were starting to run late. We never missed shipping, by the way, I should say that. But we were coming dangerously close. So I thought, you know, this has taken a long time to get this out. So without telling anybody, I had them re-letter the word, the word greatest to latest. <laughs> so if you look at, oh, yeah. you look at the top, Yep, the world's latest comic magazine. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. And I never told anybody. I just put it out there and let because most people, you know, as Sherlock Holmes says, we see but we do not observe. When you've seen the the tagline for so many years, you just kind of pass it over. And most people didn't notice it until I pointed it out. So, so I had I had some fun with that, and uh, you know, we got away with it. But Walt, um, as I say, Walt Walt was a guy who could turn a book around very quickly. The thing was, you know, Walt would take his time getting to it. He had other things to do, other commitments, whatever. And um, But we never missed shipping. He was always there, and we always got it done. And, uh, you know, he had so many, uh, you know, milestone things there that we did. Um, it wasn't just that first story. We went into some, some stuff right right after that, because you thought that, okay, right after this story is over, they get back to, our timeline, and it turns out they went into an alternate timeline where um, Joseph Stalin now had taken over, and he was able to play around with the dinosaurs that he loved so much there. And uh, and then we also, um, Walt did this great thing. I know one of the things he told me about that he wanted to do when we were talking at Chris Claremont's place was he wanted to do a story that kind of hinted, or maybe very strongly hinted, that we never really had seen Victor Von Doom since the very, very early days that he really had been gone and that there had been a replacement for him, whether it was a robot or some other person, but that Doom himself had been gone for quite some time. And I said, you know, that was eerie. That kind of sent chills up my spine because Doom is a scary character to begin with. You imagine, you know, stalking his castle with that, that mutilated face behind the mask and it's really, you know, pretty creepy stuff. And here you're thinking, this hasn't even really been the real doom. So when Walt came on, um, we did an issue, a double-sized issue, if I remember right, uh, anniversary issue of some sort, that actually, uh, you know, Walt kind of very strongly hinted that, that, you know, the real doom had been gone for a long time. Now he came back. Didn't interfere with continuity, didn't change anything, but it added another layer of mystery 
and awe to doom, and I love that. I thought uh, Walt pulled that off brilliantly. Yeah, wow. Um, another one, that, another story that stands out to me is the um, the new Fantastic Four with Art Adams. Yeah, yeah, with Art Adams. Now, can you give me a little bit of the behind the scenes on that one? Well, Art um, was a guy who was very close to the Simonsons. Um, I knew Art. You know, I had talked to Art and all that. But, um, you know, he lived out on the West Coast, and, and, you know, we were not really close friends, but I certainly admired his artwork. Everybody loved the art stuff. And um, it was Walt, really, who was able to get art on these three issues. I really was not the guy who got him on there. But because Walt was doing it, um, art was eager to jump on. And, you know, we were able to, to really play around with uh, with some fun stuff with the scrolls and all, and... You know, I just love that. I mean, that whole new Fantastic Four thing where you had, uh, you know, Wolverine and Ghost Rider and Punisher and, all, and Spider-Man. I mean, that was just three issues of, of just great fun. And I've always loved the Mole Man. And I've always loved that whole subterranean thing with the monsters and then tying in Skrulls and this Technotroid thing that came out of it. And I remember it was so well received that it actually got reprinted um, as a uh, trade paperback those three issues and we were able to throw in some additional material some of the sketches that art had done so again it was a very very satisfying um really twinkle in your eye kind of a three issue thing and um i just had a had a great time working on that with those guys mm-hmm. it was really wonderful a lot of fun what led to uh, walt leaving the book well i think walt had done um everything he wanted to do um we we had um you know, we had that last storyline um, where we were dealing with the um, that whole uh, thing. I forget, I forget the name of it. Not the Congress of Realities. It was um, uh, the t- tra- uh, trans uh, the TVA, the Time Variance Authority. Oh yeah. And uh, right, the Time Variance Authority, and all of the um, all of the sort of bureaucrats in there all kind of had a Mark Grunewald look on their face. <laughs> And that was that was kind of fun because I remember at one point um, I think you know Mark uh, in his day um, as executive editor wanted to really keep track of all of the stuff that was going on in the Marvel universe and try to keep it all under control. And you can go sometimes a little bit too far with that. And I remember at one point Mark had sent out a, um, a memo where he had um, said that no new. Um, outer space or alien races could be introduced without it running past his office. And I think Walt was one of the guys who, you know, kind of mildly bristled at that, like, hey, come on, you know, if I want to do something in one of these books here, I don't want to have to run it through this, you know, bureaucracy. That, okay, can I introduce an offshoot of the scrolls or whatever? So, again, um, you know, Mark's intentions were good, um, but maybe he'd gone a little bit too far with that. I, I don't know. And, and as I say, Walt, uh, I think, just kind of wanted to tweak his nose a little bit so all the bureaucrats in the TVA looked like Mark Grunewald because he was the guy, you know, that was sort of keeping track of everything in the, in the Marvel Universe. So he had all these Mark Grunewald kind of bureaucrats keeping track of everything in the multiverse. That's incredible. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's so And funny. again, they were, they were good friends, by the way. There was certainly yeah. no animosity between the two of them. I mean, Mark is the one who put Walt on Thor. So. But, but, you know, he was kind of tweaking his nose a little bit. Yep. And, and also, um, there was a lot, of, a lot of wild stuff. Walt did some, some really kind of cool things with the visuals um in that in that story and and the one with um with doom where reed and doom go up against each other and they're kind of bouncing back and forth in time and walt did all of these kind of 
sort of overlay Xerox things where, where Reed and Doom would be on the sides of pages, but there would be these multiple images of them. And it was just wild because it took a lot of work to do, but, but it all worked out in a story sense. And um, it was, again, a lot of fun. But the whole TVA thing I thought was great. And that, that railroad that uh, sort of, you know, drove through time and all and got them all back to reality, um, you know, it worked out. The it, was, it was a way of playing. That's it, the Cross Time Express. Yes, I remember flipping through that last night going, ah, oh, I had a blast with this. But I, I was very happy, and, you know, Walt concluded his run in fine style. Yeah. Um, and then it was just time, you know, for him to, to go off and do other things. He certainly was not going to have any shortage of uh, stuff to do. But, uh, but it was a really good run. I'm very happy I put him on that book, and um, I, it was definitely a, a memorable run, especially for the way Reed Richards was portrayed, because, you know, as I say, more than almost anybody, Walt got what Reed was about and understood the science. You know, he could play with the, the Marvel Universe science and add some real-world science to it to give it some real verisimilitude, and uh, I was thoroughly happy with his whole run. Yeah, wow. Fantastic. <laughs> great stuff. Yeah, it was great stuff, really was. Mm-hmm. So did you know that his time was coming up? Did he give you warning about that and you were able to prepare yes. for it? Yeah, it was no sudden departure. Um, you know, we knew after this run that this would be it. You know, Walt had put so much into it because, remember, he wasn't just, you know, writing it. He was penciling it, too. Right, yeah. And so that, you know, a reader reads it, you know, once a month and reads it for, you know, 20 minutes or half an hour and they're done. This is a guy who's living with it, you know, 30 days out of the month. So after a certain amount of time you know, when you're both writing and drawing it, you just say, okay, you know, I've done what I, I you know, want to do, and it's time for me to, to leave here because you don't want to get stale on the characters, and, and you want to leave them begging for more rather than saying, no, 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 enough is enough. And, you know, Walt picked just the right time to, uh, to leave. Uh, we left on a high note. Um, he had concluded a great run, and, um, and, you know, that was it. It was really good. And did you? I would love to have had him stay longer, but he, you know, that was it. Of me. course, yeah, of course. <laughs> and so, did you bring on Tom DeFalco and Paul Ryan? Yes, yes, that was uh, my next choice. Um, I had worked very well with Tom. Tom was EIC at the time, and um, you know, Tom and I were always, you know, good buddies from back when he started at Marvel. We always hung out together. Uh, you know, we were just we were just good friends. Um, and I thought that Tom would have a very different sensibility to the Fantastic Four than Walt did. And I wanted to make that kind of a change. I didn't want to bring on another guy who would, you know, do similar things to what Walt was doing. I said, you know, as Walt was a, a radical change from Engelhart, let's do, a, you know, another radical change. So I thought Tom, who I worked with, I believe, at that point uh, on Thor, I, I think I had been with him on Thor uh, already for a bit. I said, you know, uh, Tom, and again, Paul Ryan, um, who's, a, who's a very underrated artist. I mean, if you go back and look at Paul's stuff, it, it really, he's a great storyteller, and he left nothing out. I mean, this yeah. is a guy who, you know, filled every panel and all. Um, I'll tell you something, though. Unfortunately, that was kind of at the time that the image guys were making their impact with a lot of large panels and kind of a lack of storytelling, but it was, you know, you you sort of fill the, almost every other page was sort of a pinup page. And I remember, you know, saying uh, to Paul, you know, Paul, you're a fabulous storyteller and all. I said, but try to get just a little bit more dynamic. Just throw a little bit more punch into there. Because I said, you know, the, the image guys are, are doing some things here that are just sort of, 
you know, people are reacting to it and all that. And even though the storytelling isn't there, the visuals, I said, are impactful. So I said, let's, let's do a little bit of both. I said, you stay with that storytelling. But when it comes time to do a big scene, give them that big scene. You know, think Kirby. Think, think along those lines. And that wasn't quite natural for Paul. You know, he didn't really think, he was, he was much more of a, he was kind of a Kurt Swan guy in the fact that he put everything in there, everything was drawn perfectly, it was a pleasure to work with, he was never a day late on anything, and every character, the story was told, you know, flawlessly. The only thing I wanted him to do was just add a little bit more punch, just a little bit more dynamics to it. Hmm. And he did, because mm-hmm. if I go back and look through that run now, you can see that. You can see, wow, okay, he introduced this character, gave him the big panel, he played around with stuff, and he began to even play around a little bit with layouts. So I was very happy, loved working with Paul. Um, he, was, he was just a gentleman, the truest professional you could work with, and um, you know, always there. No matter what you did, if he was going to do anything, he would call you and say, you know, I might be able to improve this a little bit by doing this. And I'd say, Paul, you know, go for it. And, uh, you know, we'd talk it over with Tom, and inevitably we would always go with uh, Paul's suggestion. So it was great. And, of course, I also worked with Paul, with Mark Grunewald on DP7 for the new universe. All right. And we had a, right, we had a great, great run with that. And the other thing was Paul was very happy with Danny Bolinati, um, his inker. Danny was another kind of unsung hero, like you're talking about with Joe Sinnott, because Danny was another guy who was just always on time, always there, always the most enthusiastic guy. You know, you'd send him pages and he'd call you up and tell you, Ralph, I love working on this stuff. This is great. So he was, he was having a good time. The whole team was just united and having a good time with Fantastic Four. And, uh, you know, Tom, again, had many memorable moments on there and uh, created a bunch of new characters, new villains, you know, Pieback the Power Scroll and Devos the Devastator. And, you know, again, very different than what Walt did but no less satisfying and no less fun to work on. Um, it's interesting that Tom followed Walt on both Thor and Fantastic Four. <laughs> yeah, um, he did. Right? And they, and they had they're very different sensibilities, you know. Uh, and and um, But again, both equally fun to work with. And again, I love what Tom did. You know, we did that whole Nobody Gets Out Alive storyline in which Tom really played around with the idea of, you know, what would have happened if Galactus actually had come to Earth and devastated it. And, uh, you know, then we got into that whole other thing with Franklin Richards now becoming an adult. And that was something also, you know, Tom really wanted to do unexpected things on that book, too. And his, in his own way, you know, he did uh, as many radical things as Walt did. Um, it was just kind of maybe a little bit more unexpected when Tom did it. And, um, you know, we did a lot of storylines that um, storyline also with Nathaniel Richards. You know, Tom played with the family relationships and and again, you know, having Franklin appear as an adult, um, or if not an adult, certainly maybe a young adult, and then um, and then having Nathaniel Richards, Reed's father, play a major role in some of the storylines, sort of this figure in the background who was manipulating events, I also love because I think Nathaniel Richards was a very interesting character, and I love what Tom did with him. Um, I think he was called Deathstorm or, or something like that. Later on, it was revealed that's that's who he was or something, but. Um, but it was just great um, that that whole run, you know, whether Tom was, uh, you know, bringing back one of the original uh, characters, uh, villains, or whatever, or moving ahead with with creating his own. Um, and again, Oculus, another one that he played around with. Um, they were just, uh, you know, again, just great fun, just great fun to work with him on that. 
Now, you mentioned uh, Franklin Richards becoming an adult, uh, and he takes on the persona of Psylord. Yes. You, then they put together a team called Fantastic Force, where he was the leader. And I remember collecting, or my brother collected that one, actually. I got to read all of those. And um, you're ah. the editor on the, the initial issue. Um, so what was your role in, in getting that book off the ground? Well, uh, again, we, were, we wanted to, to play around um, with, with a whole different kind of a take on, uh, you know, on the Fantastic Four. And so we, we said, let's kind of do something a little different. And, you know, calling it Fantastic Force, um, you know, with a whole different group of characters that just sort of arose in the, in the FF book, uh, we thought would be, would be fun. And, and again, um, you know, it was uh, something that, you know, Tom had been involved in, and um, I just saw, said, yeah, let's, let's do it. Let's, let's go ahead. I had forgotten that I had not edited, I guess, the entire run of those books, but I guess, what was it, the first issue I was on? And then after that, I... Um, I think you have a credit in issue four as well, but that's about it, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't know. I'm sure I kept my eye on it yep. and uh, read it over and looked at it, but probably not as uh, you know, closely as if I was actually editing it. But it was nice to do a little tributary of the FF, you know, yeah. and, and play around with other characters that were related to the Fantastic Four and, and uh, call a Fantastic Force, which was kind of uh, a name that sort of fit in with that, with that time period, too. A little bit about myself here. When I started, first started collecting comics, it was I, a Fantastic Four I was collecting where I would just kind of randomly find issues throughout um, Englehart and Simonson's run. But once Tom DeFalco started, that's when I yes. seriously started collecting every issue and um and those were very formative for myself um the this, the early ones i mean the one of the first things i remember when reading comics is finding out that johnny storm's wife was a scrawl and i had no hit, idea about the history about the background of of his relationship or her relationship with the thing and all this kind of stuff but just the fact that they were taking they were rewriting history so drastically right there was fascinating to right. me. Right, I think she was, yeah, I think she was, wasn't she Lyja La- Laserfist or something That's like that? That's right, yes. I think that was the way we, yep. yeah. Now, again, let me, let me um, go back a little bit on this and try to, to recall what actually had happened. I think at one point, um, when J- Johnny, and now wasn't it initially that he was getting married to Alicia? Was that what had happened? He got married to Alicia in issue 300, just before Steve Englehart. Right. Now, here's what, what my thinking was, and Tom was with me on that. You know, Reed, uh, um, Johnny and Ben were really good friends, and I don't remember exactly how the wedding came about, but I know that it always was one of those things that kind of rubbed me the wrong way, that Johnny would actually marry a woman that was so close to his partner, Ben, that no matter how rationalized the circumstances could be, there just was something about it that just didn't fly for me, that, you know, yeah, you know, Ben couldn't have many women being the thing, and here was the one woman, you know, who really was devoted to him, and I just didn't like the way that dynamic was, was shaken up. Um, it, it just didn't put Johnny in, in a positive light for me. So Tom and I had talked it over, and... I said, you know, let's see if we can find a solution to this, you know, that, that wouldn't or would put Johnny in a more positive light. And so, you know, I think it was probably Tom who came up with the idea of actually being a stroll, using this opportunity to infiltrate the Fantastic Four, and actually using certain techniques and tactics 
to have sort of coerced Johnny or hypnotized him or whatever to get him into that marriage so that it was less his actual decision. And that put it more in a positive light and also mm. was a kind of shocking thing for the readers, too. Yeah, yeah. Now, again, whenever you do something like that, readers who were happy with the marriage and all would be shocked and stunned and probably dissatisfied. But, but other people reacted positively to it and said, yeah, you know, I never quite bought that that idea either, the way Johnny married Alicia. So um, that was radical rewriting, but we tried, of course, to make it fit within continuity to give a logical, make it a logical outgrowth of the marriage, um, that she wasn't really Alicia and all. And um, I w- again, I was happy with it. If I had to go back and do it again, I would do it again, because I never quite liked that idea that Johnny would marry, um, Christa, uh, would marry Alicia. Right, yeah. So how did you react to it? Well, um, like I said, I was first kind of getting into comics, so I didn't really have the the knowledge and the history of these characters to begin with. So I wasn't attached to them as a couple because I didn't really know them as a couple. Uh, so I, 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 I just found it fascinating. This was also my first introduction to the Skrulls. It's like, wow, there's this alien race that can be hiding among us. And like that, it was just, uh, I don't know how old I was, 9 or 10 or something like that. So... It was fascinating. I thought it was great. That? Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and it hooked me. Well, and that was the great thing about the scrolls was that they were they were shapeshifters. Yeah, yeah. And, well, and this um, it just it had an impact, and I I've been a Fantastic Four fan ever since. I've got I think a majority of the run of, in the single issues, and uh, and it's just a it's it remains to be one of my favorites. And you talk about Paul Ryan being an underrated artist. I completely agree. His work here is just stellar. He's solid. Is it? It's 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 he's just a fantastic storyteller and he doesn't need to rely on the splash pages or the sort of the visual right. gimmicks in that sense because his work gimmicks, speaks for exactly. itself. Yep. Exactly. Yeah, no, you hit it right on the head, Curtis. You really did. And I'll tell you something. You know, there are a lot of times you go back and, and I, I have a phrase that I use, more fondly remembered than reread. And in many instances, there are a lot of times, you know, you recall something from when you were younger, and you said, man, that was so fantastic, whether it was a film, whether it was a television show, or a comic. Then you actually go back and reread it, and you go, "Eh, you know, I'm sorry I recommended this to somebody, because it wasn't as good as I remember. (laughs) But when you go back and reread and look at those Fantastic Fours that Paul Ryan did, you go, you know what? This stuff is even better than I imagined. When I went back and was looking at them, you know, just again last night, took out that whole run, I was really amazed at how much detail was in there, how, how well all the characters were, were presented, and, and how cool it all was. And I said, you know what, Paul's run was, I was even more satisfied when I kind of put the last book away saying, yeah, this, this really was good. And I, I was very happy. I'm going to have lunch with uh, Tom DeFalco tomorrow, and I'm, I'm going to tell Tom, you know, Tom, I had a chance to kind of, glance over your run um, last night again, and, and uh, you and Paul you know, really knocked it out of the park. And it's yeah. interesting that you really became a serious um, FF reader with Tom's run on there. So you really were experiencing FF as a major thing for the first time with, with Tom and, um, and Paul. Oh, yes. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, I uh, hold him in high regard. And so I was able to, I talked to, to Tom recently about his run on Thor, which I had never read before before talking to him f- a few months ago and it's just stellar as well he is just a solid Isn't writer it? he he uh i yes. love just uh his his long i feel like he takes his time with plot and character developments and um the payoff comes uh way more down the road but it's it's just great the way he ties his threads together his relationships with the characters 
He's yeah. a solid guy. Yeah. And, and you think about it, Tom did some radical stuff with that book, too, because we eliminated the original Thor. I mean, now, you know, yeah, nowadays right. they kind of do it routine. You know, we get rid of, you know, the Thor and replace him with the unworthy Thor or the, you know, the Jane Forster Thor or whatever. But back then, that was a radical thing. Tom yeah. got rid of Thor and replaced him with Thunderstrike. Eric Masterson, with yeah. Eric Masterson. That was a whole... And then that became another book. I mean, uh, you know, uh, Tom should really be given credit as a guy who could pick up on the lineage of Lee Kirby or Lee Ditko or whatever, you know, it was from whatever book he was working on, but that he always found new directions to go in. He was, he was not the guy to go back and rehash plots. We never did that. Tom would always go, we're going to do something different with this. You know, we're going we're to remain faithful to, to what came before and pay homage to it. But we're going to move all the characters and events and everything in radically different ways. And Tom did that, as I said, both, both on FF and, and Thor. You know, one thing that we did that I have to say got, was a little bit of a controversy, and probably today you'd go, why was that a controversy? We changed Sue Richards' costume, <laughs> and we gave her a bit, <laughs> yeah. a bit more of a revealing costume. Right. And I remember one of the people who seemed to be offended by it was my buddy Mark Grunewald. And I said, Mark, I don't get it. I said, what's the matter with this? It's not like we've got a, you know, walking around in a bikini or something. I said, this is just something that, that's, you know, Sue was sort of declaring herself a, a real, you know, woman individual here. She didn't have to be, you know, bottled up in this, this whole uh, uniform. I said, this was something I like what Paul came up with. I thought it was a, a great costume, and um, I'm glad we stuck with it. But, but I have to say, there was a little bit of negative reaction. that Some people thought that we were being a little sexist or that we were, we were trying to play up Sue's physical attributes and all that. And I said, well, she's a beautiful woman, um, you know, no reason to hide it. I said, but, but I, I didn't feel that we were being exploitative when we did that. So, but that was something that caused us a little bit of controversy. Interesting. Um, another thing that you guys uh, did was uh, you killed off Reed Richards, and today kind and of... Doom. And Doom. Uh, and Dr. Doom, yeah. So... <clears throat> And in today, the death of hero is kind of just like, oh yeah, they'll be back, whatever. But back then, that was uh, not a sure thing. It was that was quite shocking. I'm very happy, Curtis, you brought that up because that again was something I was very proud of. Um, I remember just recently um, on Fantastic Four that I think I think during Jonathan Hickman's run, I think there was a period where he killed off. I think it was Johnny Storm. Right. Yes. Right. And Johnny Storm was gone for. A, a few issues, I don't know, three or four issues maybe, and then came back. And I was talking to Tom, and I said, well, you know, Tom, I said it was a you know nicely done story and all that. I said, but when we got rid of Reed and Doom, the one thing that we really wanted to do and that we were very much on the same page on was we were not, we were going to play with readers' expectations. We had no intentions from the start of bringing those characters back for quite some time. This was not something that we, you know, said, let's get rid of them to bring them back in a few issues and all that. Right from that point, we kind of had a pact that we were going to keep both those guys gone because we wanted the reader to go, oh, all right, well, you know, they'll come back in a few issues. And then when those few issues went by and they didn't come back, and then when six months went by and eight months went by, I wanted it to really stick in the reader's mind that, you know what, maybe these two guys are gone for good. Mm-hmm. And there was another reason that I wanted to do this, Curtis, and it goes back to one of my earlier comments to you. When you remove a family member who has a particular function within that family, as every member of a family does, 
you force the other members of that family to assume different, if not persona, different aspects of their personality have to come to the fore because they have to assume a different position. They have to move to a different level in that remaining family structure. And so with the Fantastic Four, one of the things Tom and I talked about was, you know, early on, uh, for even for a long time, Sue was really the invisible woman. You know, she, she was certainly in some ways the heart of, of the FF, but there was always a lot of talk about, well, you know, she never really got the prominent role that the other characters had in all that. So Tom and I really wanted to bring her to the fore. In Reed's absence, she now became the person who was the leader of the Fantastic Four. And we also wanted it that if you think about something with a real family, if someone in a family goes away or dies or whatever, and they're gone for a year or two, but you know that that family has to adjust to that loss, and they have to find a way for the remaining family members to carry on and to continue, and for there to be another sort of figurehead at at the head of that family. Some other person has to come to the fore. So in Fantastic Four, it was Sue. Now. Just as that new family relationship, that new family dynamic was being established, then it's time to bring back Reed, because now Sue is firmly established as the leader, and now the real leader comes back. So we wanted to create a little bit of friction and a little bit of thing like, you know, Sue couldn't be happier that Reed was back, but yet at the same time, Sue had now assumed the leadership role, and she was going to lose that leadership role, too. So yeah, somewhere yeah. in there, right, somewhere in there, way, way deep, there's still maybe just the slightest bit of resentment that, you know, this was, I was, I was, you know, getting into this role. Of course, she loved Reed with her whole heart, and she wanted him back more than anything, as I say. But there's still a little bit of that part of her that said, I think I did pretty good running this group, you know, and I'm going to turn the wheels, you know, back to you. But I didn't do too bad. And so that's really what we wanted to do. We wanted to mess with readers' expectations. We wanted to really get them to the point where they thought, hey, maybe Reed is gone for good, and maybe so is Doom, the greatest villain. They're gone for good, and we're going to just have to accept this new family dynamic. And so were the Fantastic Three. They were going to have to accept the new family dynamic. Mm-hmm. And just when you think the reader's now getting comfortable with the fact that Reed isn't around, that's when you bring him back. Yeah, and that's just yeah. what we did. Right. So, how did that work for you? Oh, it was great. And the the thing about um, the thing about the time when he was gone was that he also he sort of came back a few times in different ways. Like it was a different alternate right. reality version of him, or in the past, or whatever. So <laughs> it was like you never knew when he was like we kept thinking he was going to come back and then he did but it wasn't really him you take him away again and especially building to issue 400 <laughs> it's like oh he's back yes. but it's that's not the real one either it's like that would have been the perfect place to bring it back but no no just fooled you not him again <laughs> so that, and that you know that's just what we thought too curtis we perfect. said the readers are all going to say ah oh, here he is he's coming back in 400 <laughs> this is what they're setting us up for no no and then so when he actually really did come back I didn't believe that either. There was going to be, I figured there was going to be some way that you were going to write it or the Tom was going to write it like, no, this isn't actually the real one. But it was, it was great. And I loved that. And so, and reading, when I eventually got all of the back issues and I could read through Steve Englehart's run all the way to the end of Tom DeFalco's run, um, yes. he had a really strong time when 
when Ben Grimm was the leader with Steve Englehart. And then in Walt Simonson, like you said, you, he played up Reed being a Reed. much much bigger leader, and then then Tom comes in and sues the leader. So you get you get all over, the, but but they're still the same characters. You still have the same Fantastic Four, but uh, but with a slightly different perspective. And it was just it's such a great. That's what different writers bring to it, and I love it. Absolutely, and you and once again you hit it right on the head because. Steve emphasized the thing, and Walt emphasized Reed, and Tom emphasized Sue. We had that opportunity. You know, the, the group dynamics shift. They can be the same four characters, or you can take one away and keep the remaining three, but the group dynamics just alter, and one of them, you know, just comes to the fore, because somebody's got to lead this group. But it was really, um, you know, a wild thing. And, and I really also, um, and again, you, you certainly were... Um, aware of this because you were, um, you know, really getting into the book then. But I, I really liked it when Tom would introduce, you know, his own villains, like Payback, the, the power scroll, which yeah. actually was kind of a play on the words payback. Right. That was kind of the idea behind Payback. And Devos, the devastator, who I really love, because I just love the visual of it. And I love the fact that he was not really, in his own mind, he really was not a villain. He had been created to keep the peace, you know, and so this this was a character who had this incredible power of devastation, but he was really, you know, being created to maintain the peace in in the universe or the galaxy, whatever, even if it meant wiping out a whole race to do it. So he had a very interesting motivation, and um, and I liked that. And I also liked, you know, Oculus and any of the other characters that Tom introduced, and we play with them for two or three issues, and... Uh, you know, have some fun with those guys, and then then get into some of these heavier storylines. But I thought um, that that stuff was a lot of fun. So I, I always encourage Tom. You know, let's let's play around with some new guys too. Let's bring in some new villains, and um, and you know, Tom just uh, you know got up to the plate and uh, and hit it out of the park. Wow! And you didn't stay to the end of Tom DeFalco's run. You had left a little bit before that, right? Yes, I did. Yes, before Tom's run was over, and uh, Nell Yamtov uh, did a fine job when he took over. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I, I always kept in touch with Tom, though, actually, because we sort of were, were discussing, really, the storylines right through the end, but I was not able to stay on the book. But then we got, um, you know, again, Tom and I had discussed a lot of the stuff, so we kind of knew where it was going. And uh, Nell picked up the, uh, the baton very nicely, and we got that uh, great double-sized issue with all the watchers in there. and. Yeah. Um, Right, the Prime Watcher and all, which which I like that idea that there was sort of a, a one above all Watcher, and uh, and you know how all that that fit in with all the other stuff that we had done before. It was kind of a, a nice sort of um, you know capstone to the whole thing. It sort of uh, put the put the capper on everything Tom had done. So uh, I think Tom had a Tom and and um, uh, Paul had a very very satisfying run um, on those on the, that entire book. Really. Yeah, they sure did. It's uh, probably, I would, because it it was my first introduction to the Fantastic Four, I'd probably say that it's my favorite run out of all of them. It just holds a, holds a, holds a big place in my, in my heart and in my memories. So (laughs) that's great. That's really nice. No, that's really, that's gratifying to hear you say that whenever, uh, you know, an editor or or a creator is on a book and somebody says, you know, this, this was my first and it's still my favorite. That really means a lot. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we, we did put an awful lot into all the guys who worked on those books, put all, put, put all their energy into it. I mean, you're, 
you know, you have a sense of, of history here, too, because the Fantastic Four is Marvel's first family. I mean, this was the uh, the beginning of the Marvel universe was, was uh, with FF number one. And so you you do have a sense that you're really playing with history here, more than with Avengers you know, or even X-Men or anything. Fantastic Four is, is you know, was what it all came from. Yeah. So um, there, there was just something about working on that book and those characters that uh, really brings out the best in everybody. And so it was, uh, you know, that, that run of uh, Tom and, and Paul's was really uh, an exceptional run. And again, all of the wild stuff that they did on there and, and uh, playing with readers' expectations. Oh, and there's something else I did want to mention, too. Kind of as a, um, a bit of a counterpoint to what, um, to what Walt had done, um, where in that, that issue, that double-sized issue, where he showed that, you know, the real doom um, had not really been around for a long, long time. Tom did this great little story, and I forget it was in um, it was in one of the anniversary issues that um, we did a little story in the back that Art Adams, of all people, drew, and it was uh, it was Doom who was dictating the news about himself. <laughs> yeah, that, <laughs> you remember that? Yep, yep. And yep. we. We did that very deliberately because we wanted to show that you never really, you know, as, not necessarily really as a counterpoint to Walt, but maybe as a kind of a supplemental story to what Walt had done. We want to show that what, what you know about Doom, you never really know, because he controls the news about himself. And so, you know, he kind of puts out a, a, a daily summary or a weekly summary of where he's been and what he's been doing, but it's all slanted. You know, it's it's all altered and made into something that's going to suit his purposes. So we we really that that was just a nice little touch. And I remember, um, I, I believe that was Tom's idea. Nice. And it was a great idea. And, and just having it, you know, in the book, not making a big deal out of it, but just you know, this was this was what Doom does. Doom manipulates the news about himself, and yeah. it was a way of, you know, playing back into that Walt story that, you know, maybe Doom was gone for a long time but you know what maybe he just told you that story because that's what he wants you to believe maybe he was here the whole time <laughs> you know uh, you never know so yeah you never know that's the thing you want to keep the mystery about the characters that's something i've always said when when um, i've talked to writers uh, on books that i've edited and tried to keep that in mind when i've written myself is if you're going to solve a mystery in the marvel universe make sure you leave them with a bigger one don't answer all the questions, because once you've answered all the questions, the interest goes away. Keep the mystery going. Mm-hmm. Keep, always keep something a little bit hazy, something about the character that you look at him and you say, I don't quite know everything about this guy. Keep that mystery going. So we wanted definitely to do that with Doom, because, you know, you think after all these years, you know everything about Doom. Um, okay, he's got the scarred face and all that. But there was an idea that, that, that Kirby had, if I remember correctly, that was a, what I thought was brilliant, which is that Doom is not really scarred like crazy. He's just got a little scar on his face, and that makes him even crazier. When he yeah. takes off the mask, right, there's just a little scar on his face because he's such a perfectionist that that little scar he can't get rid of, that's what drives him mad. He's not, he's not like the Phantom in the Opera where he pulls off the mask and his whole face is disfigured. I guess that's kind of been established. But I always loved Kirby's idea because, you know, as, as you think about it, if you have a car that you love and you polish this car and, you, you know, you just you love to see the way it looks in the sunlight and all that, and then you get a little scratch on it. And for some reason, 
you can't get that scratch out of there. Yeah. That's going to drive you nuts it's when you look you at that see. car. It's the only thing that's there right. now. <laughs> yeah. On the other hand, if the car is totaled, you go, all right, it's a loss. I got to get a new car. Right. You know, so that's gone. So that's doomed yeah. space. If it's totally ruined and wrecked, okay, he puts on the mask, he takes it off, and you go, ah. But what's really frightening is if this guy goes, look at this, and he takes off the mask, and his face is fine except for one little scar. Then you go, well, this guy really is a nut. <laughs> I, this is, there's something dangerously uh, well, wrong with this guy. So I love that, that little little touch. But we couldn't really do that because it pretty well had been established that Doom's face was kind of wrecked. Right. Thank you so much. Okay. This is what a pleasure. Right. I would love to talk to you again sometime about some of the other books that you've, uh, you, you've edited. Anytime, Curtis. Perfect. Wonderful. It's a, it's a pleasure. You let me know, and um, I will be here glued to the phone. I'm happy to talk about anything I worked on with you, believe me. Right on. Well, thank you very much, Ralph, and you have a great day. Bye, Ralph. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.